The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences is proud to introduce Dice Conversations, a new online series bringing the unparalleled networking and shared conversations of the Dice Summit to virtual platforms with talks and roundtables starting February 10th. For more information, visit interactive.org. Hi, everybody. I'm Ted Price from Insomniac Games. Today on the AIAS Game Maker's Notebook, I had a fantastic conversation with Clint Hawking, the creative director on Watch Dogs Legion. Watch Dogs Legion goes deep on societal commentary, and so did we in our chat. Clint describes his perspective on how the world is changing and how Legion reflects that change. He also describes his and the team's motivation behind one of the game's most innovative features, the opportunity to play as any character you encounter in the game. And finally, he has some excellent advice for anyone interested in a career as a creative director. Please join us. Welcome to the Game Makers Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Makers Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Hey, Clint. Thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, I, first of all, just huge congratulations on releasing Legion. And <laughs> I mean, I I have to ask, what has it been like for you releasing a game during 2020? Uh, obviously, uh, I mean, everything is hard. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we uh, we got the we decided to um, uh, send everybody home from the studio back. I think on the 12th or 12th or 13th of March or something. Actually, I was at an offsite uh, the day that sort of the numbers started to go up, and we decided to send everybody home. And um, the you know the the very good luck for us in sort of a strange sense is that, you know, Ubisoft had decided to uh, push uh, uh, several games out of the calendar at the end of last year, back in October or something. And uh, we we had spent, you know, October, November, December, um, figuring out what we were going to do with this extra year that uh, Ubisoft had given us. And then we came back in January uh, pretty refreshed and pretty, um, pretty jazzed up. And... Um, uh, kind of got everybody rowing in the same direction on you know the the changes in the in the design and the improvements we wanted to make and the and the alterations we were going to make to the story and like you know big you know big significant changes we were going to make to the game um, and it took us you know maybe six six or eight weeks in the beginning of the year through January and February um, to kind of get all of that all of those changes we'd planned for the last couple months of the previous year all kind of queued up and then bang, everybody, you know, everybody turns on their engines and everything starts to roll. And then suddenly it's like, okay, we're in lockdown. And I think in a weird way, um, you know, everybody went home and everybody got their, you know, work from home set up going. And like people kind of had, you know, marching orders, people kind of had direction and things were understood and clear. So, you know, as, as hard as it's been for all kinds of reasons, I think we were really fortunate in the sense to have kind of the timing of some things worked out and we kind of had all of our ducks in a row and it was just like, okay, go. And it doesn't mean it, there weren't challenges in figuring out work from home and all of that stuff, but it really, um, it, it was just all, everything just fired on all cylinders and, and we went from there. So could have been much more difficult, still difficult, but you know, we were lucky in a sense. Well, I, I've read interviews where you said that your favorite part of production is that period, when you've made the big decisions and you can just turbo to the finish line. I, I, I will agree. That's my favorite part too. Sure. It's that execution portion, which is very fulfilling. Yeah, I think um, uh, so. So it usually is. This time, maybe it wasn't. You know, for me personally, like I, 
I, I personally kind of thrive on, on, you know, being on the floor and like looking over people's shoulders mm. and giving feedback and stopping by people's desks and playing the game and talking to them. And, um, and that was the thing that, you know, that, that went away. Um, that kind of one-on-one, that kind of pat on the back, that kind of, um, camaraderie that you get when you're, when you're in the final stretch. Yeah. That was the thing we lost. And I think, um, I think that was, you know, is tough on me. You know, it's been, it was a long, long project. And so very fatigued and to not be able to get that, you know, that human contact was definitely, um, definitely tough. What do you, when you, when you look ahead to how development may end up changing, do you think anything can take the place of that if we are remote or partially remote in, uh, in years to come? Um, I mean, I think it's going to be part of the part of the way we're going to have to work going forward. I think, you know, I think for years there's always been this idea of, you know, the 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 computers and the internet would give us the freedom to work from that, you know, white sandy beach with the blue uh, blue sea out in the distance with our little uh, margarita, working on our laptops, and that that would be the future. And you know, we never really got there, but I think um, I think COVID kind of forced us to harden up the backbone that like makes that idea at least kind of imaginable and it's Absolutely. probably I, I can't afford to spend too much time on a <laughs> on a white sandy beach like it's not that's not the point but more like you know now that we can work uh remotely um some people are going to ask for it some people are going to demand it um and i think we're going to have to get used to figuring out how to do that um can anything take the place of the face-to-face i mean people work in different ways i guess i mean i know i need it um I also know, like, I'd be really happy to, you know, work from home one day a week or, or work from home, you know, one week a month or, you know, have the flexibility to be able to work from home um, as needed or to be able to, you know, take my family somewhere for a couple of weeks and they can enjoy the, the pool and the, the sun while I, I work for part time or something like that. I, I think that could be could be great. Um, I think it's going to at least for, you know, um, the, the core core group of directors, at least, I think are going to still need to spend a lot of their time face to face in order to, you know, run down the really um, the really challenging decisions. You know, our, our creative directors at Insomniac actually feel exactly the same way uh, about the chemistry that just blossoms when you are physically in each other's presence. And, and our, there's, I think there is a, a lot to be said for that. I think there is. I mean, I do want to be, you know, I, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a, a Luddite about it. That's not, maybe not the right word. Like I want to be open-minded um, and embrace that there might be new ways of doing things and new ways of finding that energy. I don't want to just be stuck in the rut of, oh, well, we all have to, we all have to be in the same room or we can't work. Um, I, I mean, I'm going to, I'm my tendency is going to be to need that, but I'm going to try to see if there's ways to be more flexible for sure. Well, yeah, I think flexibility, which you've, you mentioned, is is what has changed. Yeah. I know for us, it certainly did. I don't think we had really serious. We had talked about work from home for years, yeah. and like probably most companies had, and it wasn't until we were forced to do it that it became we, we were able to realize the benefits. And that a lot of people do like not just the flexibility, but a balance, right? If you can have some time in the office and some time out of the office, and more flexibility in terms of where you live. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I think it's great. I mean, I also think, you know, there's, there's some savings there, you know, like a, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of studios are in expensive cities and expensive places. And a lot of people are, I think maybe only living there (laughs) uh, because of work. And, you know, I know a lot of people in our studio, Toronto's an expensive city. uh, And a lot of people in our studio have an hour commute and that's an hour each way. Right. And I'm sure they're happy to do it you know, as needed, but I'm sure they'd also be happy a few days a week to, to, to work from home. And, and I think that would be, you know, beneficial for everyone. I think it would increase everyone's productivity on a lot of axes as well. Like I, I think the demands of, you know, an hour or sometimes an hour and a half commute each way, it's like, that's really hardcore. Until we have fully self-driving cars, in which case <laughs> work in the car, sleep in the car. That's, that's what I'm looking yeah. for. Right. So I want to go back to the beginning of, of Watch Dogs Legions and Legion and ask, you know, what attracted you to the franchise? Um, that's a really big, complex question. I mean, one of the 
one of the major factors is that you know the the original team that made the first Watchdogs game um, was uh, was started by the Far Cry 2 team. So I was the creative director on Far Cry 2, and and Dominic Gay was the technical director, and Jonathan Morin, who was the lead level designer, um, and several other people from the Far Cry 2 team um, kind of spun off on one thing, and I spun off on another thing with, with you know, some other people. And um, they started working on the game that would become um, the first Watch Dogs game. And then I ended up leaving Ubisoft and going to a few other places. And um, back in 2015, I guess, uh, uh, early 2015, um, Alex Perizzo, our, our, the managing director of our studio, he, he contacted me and we met and, at GDC and had, had lunch and talked about stuff. And, um, you know, he said, do you want to come, come back to Ubisoft? And, you know, I was thinking about different options and looking at the future and, and uh, uh he said, "You know, it'd be to work on the next Watch Dogs game. Um, we, you know, they're they're work they're they were currently working on Watch Dogs two at that time. And he was like, they want to find a way to kind of stagger productions and get another team working on on what would be the third Watch Dogs game. And you know, like we want to build that up in Toronto. And it would be great to have someone who, you know, the the, the sort of core team of directors from Watch Dogs one and Watch Dogs two know and trust and have worked with before to kind of." facilitate that and you know i think it was a it was a great opportunity to come back to ubisoft but in a in a different you know with a different approach like come back to a different studio different people uh but at the same time be close to montreal you know i still you know i i went to montreal probably probably a hundred times over the course of the project um you know meet with the people there work with the people there um so I think the thing that brought me back was sort of the 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 opportunity to kind of come home again, but not feel like I was um, coming back to the same thing, come back to something different, familiar, but different. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, I'm fascinated by what you said when it comes to the timing of Legion. While, so you mentioned that you began... I guess brainstorming, thinking about the game while Watchdog Two was in production. Yeah, yeah. So um, I started in I think the summer, like August maybe of 2015, and I think at that time Watchdogs Two had just alphaed. I don't remember exactly because um, I think they shipped at the end of. <laughs> I can't. I can't remember so long ago. Um, I think they shipped at the end of 16. Um, so um, yeah. Yeah, they were still in development, and I think the game hadn't been announced yet when I first started. And the first, my first, you know, week back in the office, I like got the build of Watch Dogs Two and 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 played around in the open world, and and you know, got a sense of what they were doing. So, what is the thinking that you? How, how do you how do you approach a sequel um, when you know that a lot of people are familiar with the original franchise, but you want to do something fresh. What are some of the decisions that you have to make at the very beginning to, to, to walk that tightrope? Um, I think that in my mind, I don't make sequels. <laughs> okay. um, it may be a game that came after the game before, but I don't think, I don't ever think of anything I work on as a sequel. Um, when I came in and, you know, I played Watch Dogs 1 and, and played it extensively because, you know, they were very good friends of mine who made it and I, and I really enjoyed the game. Uh, and then, you know, played a bunch of Watch Dogs 2 in its sort of, you know, broken alpha state. Um, but it wasn't like, oh, how do I make the sequel to Watch Dogs 2? It was how do I make the next Watch Dogs game, right? How do I yeah. take the core of what this game is about and, you know, make a game that's worthy of being part of that? Um, so, and I think that's really, I think that, you know, I'd like to think that that really shows in, in, in Watch Dogs Legion. It's really looking at the ideas of the, of the profiler and looking at the, at the sort of, um, the way the worlds are thought through and the, and the role of technology and culture and society and how all these things are colliding. Um, looking at how, um, uh, looking at at the politics of the of the games and thinking about you know how do we how do we look you know at that time you know three ish years in the future and think about you know what that's gonna what what the next game should look like. I Did think. You from, have, oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
I was asked, did you, I mean, looking ahead to the future back in 2016, <laughs> were you, were you thinking or trying to project what might happen politically in the world or uh, in London sure. where, what, what were some of the, some, some of the thoughts you and the team had about where things might be in 2020 or 2019? So, so thinking back in, you know, back in, back in 2015, you know, it was, it was the, the, the end of the Obama, you know, presidency. So that was like a big factor. Um, Brexit wasn't even really being talked about, but I mean, you know, we're, we're in a time where, where we're kind of looking at, um, at real mounting global crises. We're looking at, um, you know, global warming. We're looking at, um, um, you know, kind of the, the effects of, of runaway, you know, neoliberalism and, 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 and unchecked capitalism. Um, we're looking at the explosion of power of corporations. You know, you know, we've since, since I started on this project, three or four, you know, different corporations have become trillion dollar corporations for the first time in human history. Right. So there's, there's a big, um, economic, um, um, tide that's kind of washing over our society. We're seeing the collapse of the middle class and, and, you know, all kinds of, um, transformative effects. Um, uh, and so, you know, one of the reasons we picked London is because London is kind of an epicenter of these kinds of, um, these forces. Um, it wasn't until we were working on the project for more than a year that, that Brexit, you know, reared its head. Mm. Um, um, so that's when I often, if you hear me talk about, you know, Brexit and the politics of the game in interviews, I often say, you know, you know, Brexit isn't the cause of the problems in our game world. The problems in our game world are kind of, are kind of caused by the same things that cause Brexit, right? Like our, like the ideas we were thinking about predate Brexit, um, for sure. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, those were all, that was all the kind of heavy subject matter and context that we were thinking about when we first started working on the game back in, back in 2015. And then, and then of course, like the world continued to go in that direction and even accelerated, um, yeah. quite shockingly. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like some of the ideas that you had initially about where the world might be were radical at the time, but then had become normalized by the time the game released? You're going to make me cry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I think, um, I think, um, you know, like, you know, the ideas of, of some of the, some of the, the left, uh, politicians in the United States, um, have been calling out, you know, Bernie Sanders has been calling this stuff out for, for what, three elections or something in a row. So there's not some of the ideas of the, the problems of modern capitalism, you know, Piketty, uh, Thomas Piketty, the French uh, economist, uh, you know, released his book in I think 2015 as well. So like these these aren't new ideas. Um, we were just trying to go in that direction and look. That's why we were looking at London. You know, the Panama Papers actually were released when we were on a research. There was 30 of us or something on a on a two or three week research trip in London when the Panama Papers actually were leaked. So like, you know, all of this. Uh, all of this, these, these problems, these injustices in the world that we were looking at were definitely like brewing in the pot, um, you know, for, and have been for, well, depending on how far back you want to go, they've been brewing in the pot for 30 or 40 years. Right. Um, but, uh, but there's, it's starting to boil over now. Right. And I think, um, I think now today, um, and, you know, in the last couple of years in particular, we're starting to see a collision of forces this, that I think is very troubling. You know, we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, climate change happening in a scary, scary way. We're seeing forest fires that just burn from, from whatever June until November. Like the whole planet is on fire for six months. <laughs> like, um, uh, you know, we see, we see, um, the economic injustice is just crazy. Like you look at the curves of like how much people earn and like, you know, what a $15 minimum wage that we're, we're struggling to kind of get for people is, is, is still like, like a massive, massive regression to what average wages were, you know, 20 years ago. Like it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you have, and because this is a fascinating topic, like politics, the intersection of politics and games, right? Or, or say world themes, like where the mm -hmm. world's going. Um, how often did you and the team 
discuss those, kind of get together and say, okay, here's where we are in terms of current events. Should we modify any aspects of our games to reflect this new direction or this this modification in where the world's going? I, I don't. Um, I don't think so because I think that our our struggle um, in the first you know half of development wasn't about um, coming to terms with those themes. I think I think we we get those themes. I don't think there's anything particularly earth shaking about saying people should be able to make in a living wage. I don't I don't think that that's a, a controversial conversation. Um, I think the I think the things that we struggled with were how do you make a how do you make a game where things like economic injustice and, you know, people being deported and borders and, you know, uh, uh, climate change and all of these things, how do you make a game with all of this stuff as a context? Mm-hmm. That's still a, that's still a, a, a fun and entertaining game to play, right? <laughs> like, like oh, it's, absolutely. you can't make a game about, about, about hacking into banks and publishing banking records, right? You need to make you need to make a game that has active verbs and that you know where there are car chases and and you know climbing and sneaking and and you know distracting enemies and and choking guys out and all of that kind of stuff. That's the that's our kind of core that's our core loops. That's our core mechanics and that's the thing we we. We're tr- how do we how do we make the game about this world in this context in the fight for justice in this context while when our verbs are are going to be these things? Well, well, kudos to you and the team for bringing home those themes through the individual characters. I mean, I felt like the the opportunity to recruit anybody and and see the world through their eyes, if if you know briefly for for each of those characters, was totally unique. And I, I know it was a, a key feature for the game, but it did really reinforce the themes that you're talking about in a way that was, I thought, very fresh uh, for games. I mean, and- I hope, I hope so. Like, I think, you know, there were, there were, like, I, like I said, when we were in, when we were in London um, on this long research trip, I was there several times, but on this one long research trip, when the Panama papers leaked, uh, we happened to be, you know, uh, with one of our handlers, uh, you know, with some of the people we were meeting with um, walking up uh, Whitehall road um, in front of um, uh, Downing Street, where uh, where you know the seat of the seat of you know the the Prime Minister and the and the war the off, the War Office and all of these important political buildings is and all this stuff, and there was a huge protest um, and all of these uh, there were so many people wearing wearing pig masks mm. um, and you know but that was sort of a a, a, a run on from Occupy and from um, you know, obviously playing a little bit off of that, you know, the Black Mirror episode with the the Prime Minister and the pig. I think it's the first episode of Black Mirror. Um, kind of like, um, you know, pointing at the the greed because at that time the um, Prime Minister Cameron um, was his family was somehow implicated in the Panama Papers. I forget the details now um, because of some of their investments. So like there was this big call for like him to resign because of this this financial injustice. And but the thing that was really striking was just you know us being on this street and you know getting in conversations with British people. I remember there was you know one kid who was a was a veteran and, and he was missing a leg and he had like a one of those you know those carbon fiber like blade. Um, um, prostheses and uh, and he was wearing a pig mask and he had his tent and he was there with some friends and kind of camping out and you know we got in a long conversation with him about you know about how how we saw the world and at that time we were already talking about you know play as anyone and 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 all of those features but it was it was very it was very affirming I think is the way to say it to be there talking with you know just this just this you know, ordinary guy um, with his with his real concerns and his real issues um, and his and the complexity of everything that was going on and thinking to ourselves like, yeah, like this is something we can we can we can make this into a game. We can we mm-hmm. can capture this feeling of ordinary people um, coming together and and, you know, fighting for for their for their justice. Uh, which is great. I mean, that to me definitely comes through when playing the game. And I was it ever, was there ever a concern that 
it would be a scope bomb for you guys? <laughs> That's a, again, another leading question. No, I, no, that was never a concern. No. The reason, the reason yeah, I no, that is because I, I imagine bringing that up at Insomniac and 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 it, I and being met with "Are you crazy?" You know, statements. Did people say "Are you crazy?" at some point? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think there were probably a few sobering nights when I looked in the mirror and said, "Are you crazy?" Um, um, I think. Um, you know, I, obviously, I, I can't speak to, to Insomniac and, and your challenges, but I think at Ubisoft, um, we I think we have an appetite for, or let me say let me say that a different way. I was banking on the, on my perception <laughs> that we as a company have an appetite for things that are innovative and challenging, but that are but that are at the same time like meaningful and, and relevant and that are trying to make new, you know, um, establish new boundaries. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I kind of, once, once we kind of got our heads around play as anyone and London and, you know, the future and all of that stuff, um, uh, it was really easy, easy. It was really, um, uh, it made sense for me to pitch this game and for me to talk, you know, to, to Ubisoft as a, as a company and the executives and all of that stuff and pitch this game. And, and it was really easy for me to believe in it. And I think that, you know, they, I think that I, I, I think my bet was right and they, they were willing to support it because I think they saw, you know, some of the things I was talking about and they saw, they saw a path to it as well. Um, and, you know, Ubisoft has a, has a lot of resources and it's a big company and we can mitigate risk by, you know, spreading out challenges across lots of different studios and, and, you know, bringing in different experts for support. Um, you know, we have a lot of resources that we can use um, to, to to uh, shore up places where where you know a, a smaller studio or where an individual project might might not be able to find the support they need, and so I think that was a great opportunity. Well, I, I also i I read an interview with Liz England, who yeah. former Insomniac, by the way, yes, uh, yeah. who's, who's great, and she was talking about I think she was talking about one of the tools that you guys created to support sort of this grand dream of having lots and lots of characters who without recording a billion lines of dialogue. And she mentioned, or maybe it was you who mentioned the physical simulation of throats and vocal cords that you guys yeah. somehow came up with. I mean, to me, that sounds like science fiction, but also a little bit like one of the best tools ever. So, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Can you I mean, we, it? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we talked a lot, and so yes, I'll, I'll also throw throw uh, throw on the pile here. Liz England is is brilliant. She's a genius. She's one of the most talented designers I've ever worked with. I I was very happy to uh, recruit her from you and get her to come and and work for me. Um, uh, she's great. And yes, uh, Census and all of the tools and technology that goes in to play as anyone is enormously complicated. One small piece of it is um, what we call formant simulation, which is an audio technology. Yeah. And, you know, you, you know, people have been using it in a certain capacity since like the chipmunks, right? Like right. they take, someone sings a song and they can pitch shift it without changing, you know, it's not just playing it fast forward. It's shifting the pitch, but keeping it at the same, the same length. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the, that's the sound engineer way of twisting some knobs to make it do that and stretching out a file or whatever. But, um, this is really like um, um, building a kind of a, a simulation of the the throat and the vocal cords and the and I don't know because I'm not the guy who built it. It was explained to me, so I'm just giving it to you secondhand. Yeah. Um, and and the resonant qualities of the mouth as a, as a, and the nose as a, as chambers, and um, and then you can play you know you can play the audio file from an actor. And I think what's important is. Uh, what's important about this technology is that we can, you can do it and you can just create new files. Um, so you can double, you know, you, we want to create a new voice with this person's, you know, vocal performance. We just create a new one. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have double the audio and you create another person, you have triple the audio and another person. We have a runtime solution 
yeah. for fluent modulation, which, you know, in a game where we're recording the script many, 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 many times and many versions of the script, we have a lot of audio and a lot of um, sound and where we want to reuse voices. We, I mean, we, we barely fit on disc as it is. Um, and so we weren't going to be able to do it with, with format modulation, but the, but the runtime format modulation means that we can just be playing the audio file of the person talking and, and runtime, you know, simulating a different neck, yeah. <laughs> simulating a different neck to make different sounds. You know, it doesn't change the performance. It doesn't change the, um, the, the words. Um, but it, but in, there are several cases in the game where, um, where I listen to a character and I'm like, oh yeah, this is that character. And they really, they sound like a different person because of the sort of timbre and the, and the, the audio qualities of their voice. You know, sometimes it works better than others. It's not, it's not, um, it's not a catch all solution, but it definitely was a big multiplier for us. Well, that's cool. I, I, I will admit, I, I have heard plenty of format, format uh, simulations as plugins to various audio programs, but I haven't, I didn't realize you guys were using that until I went back and after having played the game, uh, read about it. And so you did a, a really good job. I mean, the tool was very effective because usually you can tell. That's great. Uh, so I mean, I think, I think um, from what I understand and, and um, this may or may not end up being true, but I, I, um, I think that when we first had the proof of concept of that technology, well, not the proof of concept, when we were first using that technology, there was another project um, in the company. I won't name them in case I'm wrong about this. Um, but what I heard was that they, um, they had some problems with the, the recording of their, their, one of their voice actors, one of their main, main voice actors. Um, I guess maybe because it had been recorded in multiple sessions, there was a different tonality in the, in the actor's voice um, across the different sessions. And they actually took the tech from us and used it to correct um, the, 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 you know, the second set of recordings or whatever, the second month of recordings to make them match the first month of recordings better. Um, and they just burned all the dialogue. They weren't using the runtime part of it. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a useful tool for being able to manipulate voice and keep it sounding very realistic and very, um, very believable. Yeah. I mean, it kind of, it seems like it's the, one of the many things that all of us can be, you know, working on to, to alleviate some of that pressure as our games just grow, right? It's sure. just the amount of content that has to be recorded, edited, uh, you know, compressed, produced, you name it, is just, it, it's growing exponentially, I think, with most of the games that all of us are making. Well, I mean, I'm, I, I know that, you know, in the next in the next couple decades, the procedural tools that that increase the variety and the and the uniqueness and the individuality of our games are going to go. It's going to go. It's going to have to go nonlinear, right? Like, oh yeah. Like there's 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 no reason why, you know the why we see, you know, in some open world game, you know, 10 models of the same character walking down the street or, you know, you know, and just see all of these duplicates. Like we can, it's, it's more processing power and it's more memory, but it's not the same as, it's not the same as making, oh, let's just make a thousand instead of 10. Uh, It's actually like, let's just make 10 and then use some procedural tools to turn that 10 into a thousand. That's going to happen for sure. Um, yeah. I, and I, I would say the trick is uh, the refinement, right? To the point where what you're creating is authentic mm-hmm. and or feels feels authentic. And that's the that's that uh, uncanny valley we still haven't really crossed yet, Yeah, it seems. But we will. And I think we have to. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the, the, the hard part, and we, we struggled with this a lot with this game, for sure. Um, the hard part is that the uncanny valley is a valley, right? It's not it's not a it's not like a bumpy road. (laughs) It's not like, Oh, I guess we're just going to have to take a few blows while we get across there. It's really like you kind of reach some points with certain technologies and certain pieces of realization where you're like, okay, we just have to jump and we know that we're going to maybe catch the bottom rung of the broken rope ladder on the other side. And there's going to be bad guys trying to climb up our ankles and we're going to have to kick them in the face and make them fall to their deaths in the gorge while we pull ourselves up this broken rope ladder on the <laughs> other side. And it's going to be an ugly, shitty fight. And 
we're gonna have to take a few knocks when we do it but like that's just part of part of what getting over there has to be yeah excellent analogy (laughs) (laughs) well i i want to move on a little bit to the so the broader concepts of the game and and missions in particular and wanted to ask you as a creative director what makes a great mission whoa (laughs) what makes a great mission um so i think what makes a great mission is when the player has a moment of realization about what they can do Mm. um where and i think of you know i think that's what I think that's what a you know I think I think the best example of that is what a good boss fight does, where okay. it kind of where it kind of forces you into that moment. But if it's a good boss fight, you don't feel forced and you don't feel punished for getting there, right? Um, yeah. A, a great boss fight um, unlocks a new understanding and a new perspective um, mm-hmm. for you as a player, and I think that's what a what a great mission does is that it is that it um, provides that context and provides that opportunity and also puts pressure on puts pressure on that um, to try to bring you to that moment of clarity in that moment of realization okay and so without without being heavy-handed about it right you want the play so it's just- I, ideally ideally I mean obviously that's going to be very the heavy-handedness of it is very dependent upon upon the player right? Um, sometimes the thing you need to learn is just a little more out of your reach for the average player than for the, for this player or that player. So that's part of the, that's part of the challenge of making games as entertainment, right? Like sometimes there's just blockers and they're not blockers for everyone. (laughs) They're blockers for some people. And like, we try to, we try to find the sweet spot for all of those challenges, but like some people, some people quit our games when they hit those spots. And if we lower, if we lower the, the you know we lower the hurdle too much then then too many players are bored and they quit our games for a different reason so like there's obviously there's this con constant you know cycle of pro- progression i mean progression in player skill uh and understanding of the game systems and concepts um but ideally it's not just a it's not just a uniform you know upward hill it's got peaks and peaks and valleys in it that make it feel more dramatic and so for me, the best missions are the one or the best missions, the best, the best um, sort of segments of a game are the ones where I kind of build up towards a, a moment of, of, of understanding and, and new appreciation without, um, without, without either just slipping past it and going, oh, I guess the game wanted me to do that. That was easy. Or without kind of hitting that wall of frustration and being like, I don't get this. This is stupid. I quit. Right. <laughs> well, I have to say that I I felt you took a very you used a very light touch when it came to educating players uh, in the game. I, I've never felt like I was being bombarded with "Here's how you do it" or "Here you go, stupid." I, I mean, I really did feel like I ended up discovering a lot of the mechanics which were familiar from the previous games but were also not not overt right i didn't i felt like there were a lot of aha moments when i figured out how to approach some of the missions in the game so i think one of the one of the very unusual things about watchdogs legion is that you know you could you could, in theory, just play the same character for the entire game, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, there's nothing. Uh, there's a couple of small exceptions. You have to recruit an Albion guard at one point, and there's a, you know, that's one mission. You have to go on a date with someone, and and that person will force you to um, come back with a person of a different gender. So, like, you can't actually just play the whole game as one single person, but but the point remains that you can complete the game with the skills of any person that you could possibly recruit. Mm. Um, so the game in that sense is very open to letting you complete all of the challenges of the game, no matter who you choose to play as. Yeah. Um, so what that, and that's a, that's very challenging when 
uh, from a design perspective to try to encourage players to want to recruit and play as new people when the natural tendency is just like, I like this guy. I'll just like, I like this guy. I like this woman. She's cool. I like her hat. And, and I like that she has this ability and I'm just going to play her for 50 hours. So there's some different incentives and some different ways we do that. But at the same time, what it means is that the, we try to leave um, doors open to, in, to invite you to use new things instead of sort of putting them in your way as obstacles as overtly as other games might like in, in you know in some games you need the boomerang to get through the door like yeah. without the boomerang you can't get through the door and in our game you know there isn't a guy with a boomerang that if you don't have him you can't get through the door and when you get to mission seven you have to go get the guy with the boomerang or you can't get through the door um and so we're, what we're really doing is trying to you know create a mission where it's really fun to use a spider bot and where you're forced to use a spider bot because it's in the context of the mission so that if you haven't used a spider bot before you're like oh that would be cool and create a mission where you know we we push you to use a cargo drone or create a mission where we push you to get in a gunfight or create a mission where we uh, you know strongly encourage you to you know um, get in a fist fight and then also at the same time advertise advertise the keys to those doors to you even though the doors aren't locked <laughs> the doors aren't locked but you know here's the door and here's the key to that door it's not locked don't worry about it but you know maybe you should recruit this the hooligan because he's really good at fighting yeah and actually it worked i mean for me you mentioned the cargo drone that early there's an early mission where you are supposed to use a cargo drone right mm -hmm. not to give anything away and that was the mission that sort of opened my eyes to how cool it is to start experimenting, right? To, yeah. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if I tried that guy yep. who's walking down the street, who has what looks like, like some interesting uh, traits. Yep. So yeah, that, that worked well, I thought. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in, I try, I try not to be as a, as a designer or a director, I try not to force players to, to play in a certain way, right? Like I'm, I'm much more interested in games that invite me to experiment and play around. And, and I think that, um, this one more than any, um, is really one that, that, um, cause believe me, we had versions where you were forced. <laughs> we had versions where you were forced and it didn't feel right. It didn't feel good and it felt frustrating. Um, and so, uh, the version where we kind of try to advertise and invite, um, even though it was much more challenging, I think feels better. And it, I think it, it, um, it, it puts a lot on the player and it asks the player to like open their imagination and kind of open their, um, open their, uh, open their heart to the spirit of, of exploration. Um, but, uh, it's a much better experience than the one where you're forced. Yeah, I agree. So I have a vernacular question for you. Uh, when you guys have your main storyline and then you have all of the other activities that you can do outside of it, do you call your main storyline something in particular? Um, uh, yeah, we usually call it the main quest or the main the main storyline. But um, this game this game was again this game was abnormal in the sense that um, for a very long time we had like multiple parallel um, main quests, if you want, um, and. Uh, yeah. we were, you know, when, when the game was delayed, that was one of the things that, that we were recognizing wasn't as strong as it could be. Um, we, we maybe didn't have structurally in the game, um, the right, the right game structures to, to make that, um, compelling. And so we decided to, um, restructure a lot of the story and, um, make a much more robust, um, main quest with side quests as opposed to sort of five, sort of four or five, like parallel storylines. Mm. Um, so yeah, we, I mean, we call it the main quest. Okay, we we call it Golden Path okay. at Insomniac, well, which is probably that, yeah. something else. But my question then becomes, for your main quest, how do you balance sort of encouraging players to stay on the main path and, and versus explore? Because I ask because we we have struggled with this in our games and and we wonder uh, 
how much we should push one way or the other. <laughs> so it's, it's funny because you use two terms, talking about vernacular and, and terminology, you use two terms a little bit interchangeably, and we definitely don't use them interchangeably. You uh, talked about main quest, and then you talked about golden path. Yeah, so, I'm using, and what I mean, really, just to be clear about this, is I really do mean the main storyline. Right. And I, yeah, and quests is something that we use to denote an activity that is not part of the main storyline. Right. So, so we have our, like our main quest or our main storyline or our, our gold, our, our through line, but a golden path, or at least the way we use it on this project and the way I've used it in the past, a golden path is very, very different. Hmm. A golden path is a specific way to play a chunk of a mission or, or the game. Right. Oh, interesting. So, okay. so the main path, you know, for example, includes, um, you know, going to, oh, I'm not supposed to give away spoilers, whatever, <laughs> going, going to a, to an important location in London and there's a big explosion and then the bad guys come after you and you have to escape. Right. Yeah. The golden path is a specific way to play like we, that's a specific way to play it and it's you we usually talk about golden paths in terms of like marketing or um like if we're going to make a video there's a golden path we're going to play this mission but we're going to come through the gate on the west and then we're going to use the spider bot to go through here and then we're going to do the takedowns with this and then we're going to blow up the thing and escape that way on the uh, cargo or whatever uh -huh. um and then but but we don't just use it for marketing we also talk about it in terms of you know, where the level designer puts his focus and where the artist puts their attention, right? Like this is, this is the, the approach that is most obvious. We can see from playtest that, you know, most players for whatever reason, because the, because the GPS takes you to the Southwest corner of the, of this construction site, usually um, most players seem to come in from this gate and they tend to encounter, you know, this room first and then that way next and da, 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 da. that's what we talk about when we talk about the golden path. It's like, how do we focus our efforts to punch up that? How do we, oh, we should move this vent so that you can see it from the golden path, right? Yeah. So we talk about, um, we do talk about the game, even though our games are very open and, and nonlinear and player driven, we do talk about you know, the experiential um, flow. And that's what we call the golden path. But the, but the main quest is more like this is the, the order of missions. And it's, it's a kind of golden path in a sense that, that at a higher level, you know, every player goes through this. Um, and that's also a way we think about how we invest in stuff. But the, but the, the, main, the main quest is sort of uh, um, has a bunch of locations and a bunch of chapters and a bunch of gameplay events and challenges that players encounter in different ways. Got it. Okay. So along the way, you've got a, a narrative threading through everything. And for you, what comes first when it comes to narrative and design? Is it, is it the, the story for a particular segment of the game or the design? Um, it depends on the game and it depends on the on the on the on the section of the game even uh -huh. um so you know um um some games are very um much more story story first i guess you know my early games the splinter cell games the story was was very important um and there was a lot of control over the authorship of the missions and and the, the narrative beats that would unfold through them. Um, whereas, you know, Far Cry or Watch Dogs are much more um, uh, gameplay first. But even within those gameplay first games, even in, in Far Cry 2, which is a very gameplay first experience, if you want, there are sections in that game which are very story first, right? Yeah. Um, you know, when you, you know, the end of the game or, or when you're, when you're wiping out the, the, the lieutenants at the end of each of the major chapters, like there's a lot of, um, attention paid to like controlling the flow of the missions and putting pressure on the player to hit a few key points kind of rapidly and protect the mission, the mission flow, um, in order to deliver that story. And, and, in, and in watchdogs legion, of course, like, you know, obviously the end of the game, um, 
uh, where you're kind of racing to stop multiple uh, opponents, but also, you know, each of the major chapters, like there are, are the major sections of the game. There are really important story story beats and story moments where where the 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 gameplay is there to serve the narrative as opposed to the other way around. Okay. Is there any kind of philosophy that you've shared with the team about that? I mean, it's I mean, it sounds to me like it's it, whatever serves the game best at the time, right? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're, I think. I don't know that there's a flaw. I think I think you said it best. Whatever serves the game best in, in the situation, and like there are some parts where the story is important, and we're trying to convey narrative, and and we're okay with authoring and maybe diminishing the player's control over the over the high level decision making, uh, and then there are other parts where we want the player to have complete control and and gameplay rules, and yeah. it's just you know how 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 do you balance the investment? Got it. That makes sense. So I want to ask you a couple questions just about being a creative director. Sure. And you've, the, the team, I'm not sure how big it was, but it seems like it was large. And you have said that you were working with teams across the world. Mm-hmm. And how, do, how, what's the most effective way for you to share creative feedback when you have so many folks and they're so far flung? Um. I wish I had good answer. I wish I had better answers to that. Um, I think um, so. This was my first real experience. You know, Far Cry. You know, Far Cry Two was the entire team was on one floor of one building. Um, um, and previous games, obviously, yeah, we were mostly all in the same place. Um, this one, you know, we had teams in f- five or six countries around the world. Um, sometimes you don't even see something for months. Um, Mm. Um, we, so, I mean, we have some best practices, you know, we do like a monthly or a monthly team meeting, um, where we put together, you know, packages of stuff that people are working on from different studios. And, you know, I get up and say something and the producer gets up and say something and we kind of communicate vision and, and progress to the team. And then that gets shared out as at live or as video to everybody around the world. But I mean, that's not, that's not really, that's just management, right? That's not, yeah. you know, playing the game and, and giving feedback. Um, um, a few times I went to, you know, I, I went to Bucharest two or three times on this project. I went to Paris half a dozen times. I went to Montreal, like I said, maybe a hundred times. Um, I went to Kiev even a couple times. So like, um, Going to different places and playing the game with people and giving them feedback face to face obviously um, obviously helps. It builds the relationships and it builds the trust. But I mean, it's it's very it's very hard uh, at this scale. And um, I guess the the most important thing is that you know yes, I'm the creative director and that means what it means. But there are you know game directors in each of the studios who are. Uh, and, and art directors and audio directors or, or you know, you know, senior, senior directors in, in all of the different studios, depending on what they're working on. Um, and, you know, you kind of have to you kind of have to empower those people and trust those people. And, you know, that that's just how, how it has to work. I totally agree with that. I mean, that's I think for any large team, if you, if it's all coming down to one person making yeah. the, the creative decisions and yeah. you just can't ship a game. But have you, for any other creative directors listening out there, have you developed any uh, techniques that work well for you? And when it comes to telling somebody that, look, it's just not good enough. You know, this, this thing, this piece of music, this story concept, this mission design is just not cutting it. Um, well, if there are any other creative directors out there listening, you know, please email me and give me your tips. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I, I think one of my my personal toughest takeaways on this project is that um, you know people are you know I'm 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 48 years old now right so I think um, uh, the relationships that I had and the ways I communicated with people you know 20 years ago um, uh, Things things are different now. People are different. People have different expectations. People have different um, 
um, educations, people have different attitudes, different life experience and backgrounds. And, you know, I've had a couple, a couple tough conversations that didn't go well on this project. Um, and, you know, and many that went well, it's, you know, it's not, it's not all, um, misery. <laughs> um, yeah. but, uh, uh, I've had to learn, um, uh, to communicate maybe more than I've had than I had to learn more in the past, I think, because now my communication has to cross like generational boundaries, which it never really had to before. Um, and people have different, um, expectations of how they're going to be treated and how their work is going to be evaluated and critiqued and talked about. Hmm. That's the right way of putting it. I, I agree with that. I, uh, so when it comes to all of the things that you have to do or or find yourself doing as a creative director what do you like the most what do i like the most um there's two things i like the most and i don't get to do them nearly often enough (laughs) i like to um sit down with level designers or or I guess like gameplay, gameplay designers, it doesn't matter whether it's a level or not, right? Like people who are designing sort of a a space with challenges in it and just play through that space and give feedback on, you know, how that feels with the timing and, and tempo and, and challenge and, uh, you know, what the architecture is like, um, um, challenge some of the placement of the enemies and all of that kind of stuff. I like to push back on the, on the level design and, and involve myself in that. And I don't get to do it very often. Mm. Um, or at least not, not at the low, not at the low level. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't often get to sit down with a level, except when we're talking about a golden path for a demo or something, uh, where I'll often sit down in the room with 10 or 15 people and kind of play through the, the so-called golden path, like 10 or 15 times and give a lot of detailed feedback. Uh, I don't usually get to do it at the broader level of the game as a whole. Uh, I also like to, I read the script, you know, I read the script. I read, I try to read every word of the script in this, this game. So this game was an unusual case where the script was written with a, with a, I guess a, a placeholder version for the player. And then everybody, everybody who's not the player's script is locked in scone because the, the player's script gets rewritten with different, dialogue in different lines to match the template uh, for every every persona in the game, right? Yeah. So, so in, you know, in some scene, someone might say, that's bullshit. I disagree with you, right? And someone, you know, the, the drunken alcoholic mean person might say it in one way, whereas the, the nice old lady might say it in a different way. And the, you know, the, the kid from the council estate might say it in another way. They're still saying, they're still communicating the same information. So I didn't get to, I didn't have the opportunity to read all of the persona variant. That would mean reading the script 20 times. I didn't uh, get a chance to read all of the persona variants, but I did read the, the sort of template for the player uh, through the, for the whole script and gave a ton of feedback um, off to all of the different writers and all of the different teams. So, yeah. Cool. Is there anything that you would prefer not to do as creative director? Uh, I'm, I mean, it's not that I prefer not to, there's things I'm not good at. Um, I'm not good at audio, um, uh, except for where audio, you know, spills into gameplay, like Splinter Cell taught me a lot about, you know, how to listen to the world for gameplay and stealth and all that kind of stuff but like audio for mood and and you know ambient music and and you know all of that stuff that's i i don't have an ear um never have um um i don't know there's there's a couple other things that aren't springing to mind that are just like yeah that's that's not my strength like i gotta delegate that to someone who can who can nail it that makes, well, that's great that you recognize that. I mean, clearly you have a lot of talented uh, leaders on the team who can help with that too. Oh yeah. I never, I never would have thought of format modulation either. Like let the audio people come up with that solution. It's like, that's brilliant. Sounds great to me. <laughs> Do more of that. <laughs> Got it. Well, as 
I, I mentioned that there are probably creative directors listening to us. There are probably a lot of people who would love to be a creative director someday <laughs> listening to us. And if you had to give them two pieces of advice on their journey, what would they be? Oh, wow. Um, well, well, um, so piece of advice number one is don't aspire to be a creative director. I never, I, I never aspired to be a creative director. In fact, when I was first offered the job, um, I declined it. Um, and I, and most, most times I don't want to be a creative director. Um, most times I would rather be a guy who, um, who works with level designers and writers, um, uh, to improve all of their stuff. Um, uh, so don't be, don't be fixated on the title, I guess is my, is more my advice. Like don't be fixated on the title or the importance or the, or, or the authority, certainly not the authority. Um, think about um, being good at one or two or three things. Well, probably not one, but two or three things that are really important and central to the kinds of games you want to make. And um, if you're very, very good at those, you may, you may be offered to be a creative director and then consider um, not accepting that and continuing, continuing to be good at the things that you do instead of being bad at being a creative director. <laughs> um, um, and then another, wow, that's, 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 that's the key. That's the, that's the important one. Okay. Um, the other one, let's see, what's another one? People who want to be a creative director. I guess, I guess I would say um, um, you need to, you need to read more. <laughs> I mean, that's good advice. I mean, it's not just about reading, but it's about exposing yourself to stuff besides games. Um, there's way too many people, way too many people who who want to want to make games and want to be creative directors or just want to make games because they play a lot of games, but they need to watch more movies and read more books and listen to more music and, you know, look at more comics and expose themselves and, you know, cook more recipes and, um, you know, go to the gym more and play more sports. Like it's being a creative director, a good one, um, means being exposed to all kinds of media and all kinds of culture and all kinds of um, human endeavor. And if you don't do that and you think that you're just going to play four games a week or six games a week and be a creative director, you're, you're not going to be a good one. Um, a good place to start is by reading more. <laughs> I, that is fantastic advice. I, I agree that it's often tempting to just think about the last game you played or, the, or your favorite game ever yeah. and aspire to, to to improve on it. But you're right. There's a lot to life that is easy to ignore. And uh, when we can all talk on the teams, when we can all talk about all of these other things besides games, mm -hmm. it ultimately makes our games richer, right? I absolutely agree. I mean, this is part of the reason why you know, we need to fix the problems of crunch culture and we need to fix the problems of, of game developers being overworked is because if all we're doing is working, we're not, we're not enriching our lives and we're not bringing that richness into our, into our medium. Like we have to, we have to live life in order to be able to share a simulation of life with people like it's just a requirement. That what a great statement completely agree. And so just let me end up with one more sort of broad question uh, related to that. What do you hope changes in our industry over the next few years? <laughs> Man, you're asking, you're, you're just really asking all the tough ones. Um, um, I think that, um, so, so I think that maybe 10 or 10 or 12 or maybe 15 years ago, the game industry went through a, a, a renaissance of criticism. Mm -hmm. 
where I think critics um, went from being dudes who like games um, to being, you know, educated, to being journalists, to being cultural critics and having broader perspectives. And I think that, um, I think that that in some ways also led to a renaissance in gaming. And I think, you know, circa 2010, um, there was a, a huge um, explosion. Uh, that's sort of when the indie scene was really born um, and so much, um, so much creativity and culture um, came out of that. And I don't know whether it was because of the critics or whether they were part and parcel of the same kind of renaissance, but I, in my opinion, um, we're, we're backsliding a little bit. Um, and I think, um, again, for some of the things that, you know, Watchdogs Legion is about, um, uh, uh, capitalist consumerist culture and, and, you know, runaway, runaway consumerism and, and the challenges that, that come with it. Uh, I think we may be backsliding a little and I hope I also think, you know, the internet has become a pretty um, treacherous place and uh, and commentary and criticism on social media is very um, volatile and dangerous and, and it's hard to have sophisticated conversations in our current um, media climate. So what I hope will, I hope we can find a way to in the next, in the coming years is a uh, is a way to have a, a more critical and more informed and, and safer cultural discourse um, around our medium, because I think um, without it, um, uh, we could lose, we could, we could, it's not just that we'll stagnate, it's that we can lose the gains that we've had over the last decade and the last 15 or so years. And that would be, that would be an unbearable tragedy. tragedy. That is a fantastic statement to end on. So uh, thank you for, for sharing that. And I hope a lot of folks are listening and, and, and I imagine many will agree. I hope that. so. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if people have further questions for you or just want to talk about topics, are you, are you on social media? I am, yep, yep. Uh, you can usually find me at, at, at click nothing. Um, that's usually, that's what most of my social media handles are. Clicknothing.com is my blog, even though I haven't put anything on there in, in a couple of years. And I think I'm click nothing on Twitter. Um, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Great. Clint, thank you so much for taking the time to, to hang out today. Oh, I really appreciate it, Ted. Uh, great questions and very thoughtful and, uh, and uh, it was great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Game Makers Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.